This podcast is intended for an adult audience. Please be aware that some of the content discussed may be triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Reach Out, the podcast, where we are dedicated to ending sexual violence through advocacy, counseling, education, and more. This is the official podcast of Reach Counseling, located in Northeast Wisconsin. You will learn more about the services we provide and hear from members of our team, sexual assault survivors, and the people who support them. We are so glad you're joining us today and would love to connect with you further. You can find out more about us by going to reachcounseling.com. The interview portion of this episode was recorded in May of 2023. Please keep this in mind when dates and timelines are referenced. This week's episode features an interview with Tracy LaRue Moen, case manager at Reach Counseling. Tracy shares about her journey from working in higher education to case management. She also talks about how parents can approach some difficult topics with their children. Here is episode 14. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to be involved in REACH? Ooh, that's a good one. The sexual assault prevention part has always been something that's been very important to me. So I, um, even back when I worked in higher education, I always did the training for our student um, employees on sexual assault and what might happen if one of their students came to them and disclosed. So when I moved back to Wisconsin, I volunteered as an on-call sexual assault advocate for another um, SASP in the state, uh, sexual assault service provider in the state. Mm-hmm. Thank and, you for clarifying. Yeah. For those that might not know, they can go. <laughs> and um, I did that for like 10 years. And then after I had kids, I was looking, I wanted to get back into the workforce part-time while the kids were in school. And... Funny enough, my sister Tammy had sent me the link to the case manager job here at Reach. And I applied and the stars aligned and uh, I started in the fall of 2020 when my children were supposed to be in school. Right, Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) So can you actually talk a little bit about that time? How did you manage a new job? kids that were learning remotely at this point, right? Yes. How did you manage that? How did the company help you through that? Yeah. Um, it obviously, just like everything in the world at that time, there's just a lot of movement and flexibility. But uh, initially, or the position is a 20-hour-a-week position, which is what I had wanted. It was going to be perfect. Right. My youngest was starting kindergarten, and my oldest was in, would be in second grade. And so it was great. Yay, they'll be in school during the day. It can work. It'll be awesome. Only they didn't leave the house because COVID. <laughs> right. And then I was helping our neighbors. So I actually had a kindergartner, first, second, and third grader in my basement for that semester of COVID. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. I was a teacher. I'm not a teacher. And I love my teachers. And I shower them with gifts <laughs> post-2020. Um, yes. They get gifts in the fall. They get gifts in the spring. They get gifts at the end of the year. I like them a lot. <laughs> Um, and so, so all the teachers want your children in their class. They do. They do. <laughs> and so I, I went through and I did my schedule and I came back to reach because of course all this happened after I had applied. Right. And I said, I'm like, I can't do 20. I'm like, I can get 16 without, you know, making myself crazy. Um, you know, as long as you've got some flexibility and reach was still doing a lot of remote work at that time. So I was 
at home a couple of days and then I went into the office one day and then my husband was in charge of the children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so they just worked with me and so I did a lot of like post like two o'clock where the kids would be done with school and I'd make them go outside or whatever was happening. Then I would work at home for a couple of hours and then come in the office. So Reach was very flexible and they were happy to make however needed to work, work. So you used to be in higher ed. I did. My master's degree is in higher education administration with an emphasis in student affairs. Oh, hey. Okay. Yeah. It's a a lot of words. It's a long title. Yeah. So that would make sense why you were the one then going and teaching teachers about like our professors, how, how to deal with disclosure and things like that, which then made you really great to get into this work. Yeah. What made you decide to leave higher ed? Uh, I got married. (laughs) So um, I worked in student affairs. So I often, or what I did is I lived on campuses as a hall director or an area coordinator or whatever term the university might use. And I, then I managed the student staff for that, the RAs or the CAs, whatever the community college used or college used. Um, I managed that staff and that was my supervisory job. But then Jim and I had been dating long distance during my grad school. And so when I finished grad school, I worked at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter. And uh, we just continued to date long distance, but then we were getting married. So working in higher ed, I knew that uh, it was going to be easier for uh, me to move to him than to make him as a computer programmer move to me. Because this was before working remotely was really a thing. Right. uh, Because we got married in 2003. I had to think about that for a hot second. Because like nowadays, it's like computer programmer, you can go anywhere you want. And but he that's does. Not what the reality was. Then. No, it's not. He works from home currently. Yeah, yeah. But I moved back to the area because that's where his job was, and it made much more money than I was making in higher ed. And this is where I was from. So my joke is that I uh, grew up in Nina, and I tried to leave a lot. <laughs> And uh, did, you know, college in Kenosha, and then I did grad school in Oklahoma, in Jersey, in Kansas City, and I lived in Minnesota, and then I still got sucked back in because Nina is like a black hole, <laughs> and you can <laughs> never actually escape its, <laughs> its vacuum of power. <laughs> well, I know that the folks here at Reach Counseling are very glad that you're here because you actually have come up in other interviews in positive oh, light. Oh, Lord. In positive light. Um, people have... <laughs> named you as one of the people that makes their life easier and has helped them in in various ways and hearing more about your background that makes a lot of sense I mean I already knew that just from knowing you a little bit around seeing you around but but it makes more more sense now hearing your background (laughs) because you had to manage resident halls and all of these things right so one of the things that someone brought up was that you do such a good job on intakes pairing people with the right therapist you do such a great job with that, that there's not a lot of changes that have to happen with therapists and clients, which is huge. And I was saying to that person, I know that like when I met with my first counselor I ever met with, not here at Reach, different place that I was going for counseling long ago. And we just like didn't, we didn't have an intake person like you, right? And so they were just like, okay, here's a person. And we did not click. Like it was, it was really bad. It was like not a good thing. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm just like not... Bad at, like maybe I'm bad at counseling like, or getting counseled. I don't know. 
And then it took me two more people because the second mm-hmm. person I went to, I kind of liked, and then they retired. Like oh, yeah. Like three months later, and I was like, oh, I put them into retirement. I, guess. <laughs> I don't know. But then my third person I met, and like it was like such a good fit, and that like felt so great. So the fact that you're able to pair people from the get go, nine times out of ten, or whatever, yeah. even more than that, it sounds like with a therapist that you know and trust and like feel would be a good fit for them. That's huge. How do you go about this? <laughs> <laughs> um, the case manager position was new before I came. There's one person that was in the position before me, and she basically kind of created it. Um, but then once I came into the role in COVID, right? So there was a gap of like six months where they didn't have a case manager because COVID. Yeah. And um, the waiting lists grew so long mm-hmm. here and every all counseling yeah, agencies right, right? Yeah. and so it sort of grew out of necessity that one of the things that i now started to do as the case manager was try to pair people when they were coming through for an intake and so i'd go through them uh, go through the wait list and be calling them and working with everybody so that when their spot actually came up i knew who would be a good fit for them mm. so it really came out of the fact that we had this long wait list so i was calling everybody on our wait list at least once a month and touching base with them so i learned little bits about them as time went on mm-hmm. and so it became much easier to do that and so i'm continuing even though our wait list is smaller and like, like two to three months right now which is pretty average for the fox valley yeah i still generally most of the time have an idea of what that person is like and who I think they're going to fit within our organization. Mm-hmm. It's obviously easier now because we have more therapists. So right. I, have a lot, I have more flexibility in being able to partner them up. So, you know, just that interactions with them asking, certainly I'm asking about their trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Why are you coming to our agency? Mm-hmm. So there's that little bit of vulnerability they have to do right away. Yeah. So I can um, use that fact that they're giving that to us for to their to their own advantage right. to be able to partner them up with somebody and what they disclose to you obviously is confidential as well like you're not just like going around telling everybody you're <laughs> no nope. using that information to connect them yeah so can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the therapist here because mm-hmm. i know that's a big piece of what you do um i do really value our therapy team and that is a big motivator for why I do what I do because I believe in my coworkers and who they are and what they do. That's beautiful. I know, they are pretty beautiful. So my job satisfaction is very high because I enjoy working with them. And there's lots of similarities and lots of differences. Obviously they're all here wanting to do trauma work. Even our SOT therapists all, you know, do trauma work and are involved in that. And it drives why they're doing what they're doing. So knowing that our therapist chose to do this is huge. One of the things that I really appreciate getting to work with them is the fact that they will come to me. Mm-hmm. And any therapist that's ever worked will tell you that they need to have somebody to offload stuff on because they hear hard yeah. stuff. And yeah. some days that just hits you right where it hurts and you need to get it out. Um, and so then you know they'll talk with another therapist or me, which always yeah. makes me feel so important. And that, and a lot of times I'll have more flexibility in my schedule than the rest of the team. So they can pop in and be like, do you have 15 minutes? I just need to verbally vomit this somewhere. Yeah. So the fact that the therapists will come to me and allow me to be that space for them too, certainly fills up my belongingness factor. You're kind of like the centrifuge of 
the office, I feel like. I do. <laughs> I, really, I, do. That's I, really, do. I know it's for a centrifuge for mental health. <laughs> yes, I do, because yeah. the same thing happens. Because my case manager position is housed within therapy, but I also have, you know, like three feet in advocacy mm-hmm. and an arm up in prevention and you know the other arm in SOT I work with everybody on some level right so a lot of times they will come to me and be like I don't know what to do about this um, where should I refer a client for that and so they end up in my office right. which makes me happy right yeah. um, and allows uh, you know it, it goes along with my joke of I'm a master of all trades. No, jack, jack of all, all trades. Master yeah. of none. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? So I do so many different things that I, the people in the, everybody in the office has recognized, be like, ooh, Tracy might know what she's, what's going on there. And even if I don't know the answer, I know who I think will have the answer. Right. And that's been a lot of what my jobs have been over time. When I went back to Wisconsin, I ended up doing working in poverty housing, Habitat for Humanity, the emergency shelters, mm. um, transitional housing. And so I, all social services stuff, right? right? But it allowed me to learn a lot of the resources that are here. And certainly there were lots of changes when I was home raising babies for a couple of years, but a lot of the things stayed the same and my contacts are still there. So I can be like, oh, we're looking at housing stuff. Let me ask so-and-so and be able to know who to reach out for. So you're kind of like that that front line of defense, I guess, for lack of a better term. You're doing almost triage work yes. when someone calls yeah. and, and is looking to get help. Did you have to do any sort of training as the years went and this developed to know how to handle some of these really intense crisis calls or is it something that you just gained experience and kind of got resources as you needed? How did that transform for you? There were lots of experiences, certainly being the on-call advocate for 10 years that gave me a long time to work on those skills. And that's when I went to hospitals to uh, go through a SANE exam with the, with the victim. Um, so that experience, even though it was, you know, earlier in my life is something that you certainly never unlearn. And being able to know that I've done all that gives me so much more confidence in what I'm doing moving forward because I have been there with, with right. our survivors and our victims when they're at that low point. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of that experience. Once I got into this role, I did some specific case manager training because there is, in fact, like case managers associations out there. Who knew? I had no idea. Now we all know. We all know that they <laughs> exist. And so that's been very helpful to get some different ideas of how people manage that. And case management means something different in every realm. Right, right. But all of it boils down to is helping that individual. You know, the therapists do it from the point of getting them to help themselves, right? Having, giving them to work through uh, the emotions and the things they've wrapped up into their trauma. And mine is a little different because I am asking for their goals and what they want to do. Right. But I am more likely to say, here, call this person. Here, do this. So it's a little different vibe with what's happening for them. That makes sense. Can I ask this question of you? People say victims. People say survivors. What is right and what is wrong? Or are we just always supposed to say both? Is one better than the other? What's the reasoning for that? For me personally, there isn't a right or a wrong one. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. but I, wanted, I wanted somebody with, with your expertise to speak on this. So. <laughs> Not everyone is going to identify as a survivor. Right. 
they don't they are still in the in the heavy midst of what they need to get through they're slogging through that horribleness of that trauma and they're not identifying themselves as a survivor right so uh and when we're talking about the work that we're doing generally victim is the appropriate term when you're talking about working with the police officers and the sane exams and the um, children's advocacy centers right survivors is something further down the road to achieve i see so like like because of legal documentation in the court system or for police reports that's where victim comes from there's yes and typically that's where we're going to use the or at least my experience that's where i'm going to use the word victim Mm -hmm. more often is talking more about the services when i'm talking about individuals a lot of times i will use the word survivor but Mm -hmm. i also want to recognize that some people are like i am not there yet yeah you know and so then that's an internal one is it appropriate like for people that are listening to this that that have someone in their life that has been a survivor slash victim Mm -hmm. is it appropriate for them to ask that person what do you want me to say or call you absolutely when we talk about this what do you want me to say like is that appropriate absolutely okay Certainly, if they're close enough to you that they're talking to you about those things, that they're going to be comfortable telling you, you know what, no, I, um, I don't feel like I can use the word survivor yet. Or, no, I am definitely not a victim. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I am, I, I've survived that. that. They do. I've survived right, that. I am right. through that. And technically, they are, in fact, a survivor because they're on the other side. Yeah. But not everyone is ready to be able to say that. Right. So if you're having that... If you're talking to somebody about it, you probably are close enough with them to be able to ask them that question. Yeah. So if you're on the street, you're not going to walk up to them no. and be like, victim <laughs> or survivor. <laughs> but <Goodness. laughs> yeah. obviously not. Yeah. Sorry, I couldn't resist. No, that. yeah, that's great. No, I just, because it's been brought up and every time people say victim or survivor, victims and survivors. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to know for, for people that aren't in this work, what is considered respectful and you know, I found it interesting when I first got involved in REACH that it wasn't always stated as survivor because I had always heard from people in my life, don't call people victims because that would imply that they're not strong and they're not like, you know, but it's 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 different for everyone. So yeah, yeah thank you for clarifying that. No worries. How do you handle when someone calls in and, and they know, you know, you even shared there's, there's a waiting list. There's always mm-hmm. a waiting list. Hopefully someday, maybe there will be, but yeah, it's unlikely, right? If someone's feeling discouraged to call in the first place, knowing that there's going to be a waiting list, mm-hmm. what can you, what advice can you give them or encouragement you can give them to still call and connect with you and know that their needs are going to be met or help is going to be given, even if they're on a wait list? Absolutely. And that's one of the benefits of our organization and the fact that we have my case manager role. So when people call in and we're like, yes, there is a wait list. However, we want you to know that if you are, the line that I use is if you need something to keep your ship afloat, mm-hmm. we, we offer crisis sessions. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the word quote unquote crisis because we don't want you to be in crisis when you call us. We want you to be able to reach out before that happens. Right, right. Certainly if you are, great, do it. But don't be afraid to, to feel it coming on and say, I know I'm going to need something. This is going to go, this is going to go sideways. Yeah, I can't wait two months. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. So then we do... Our, our paperwork says up to three crisis sessions. Uh, we can flex that a little bit depending on how long the crisis or how long the waitlist is. Mm-hmm. Certainly, when that was written up, our waitlist was never longer than two months. So three three sessions was appropriate. Right, right. When my waitlist was six months, I did more than three sessions. Of course. Yeah. So anybody that calls in that says like I need to talk some talk to somebody, they can come in and talk with me, um, or 
our intern at the time, uh, we very much value the fact that we have several educational programs around us that utilize REACH for internships for their therapists. Mm -hmm. So either with me or with an intern, until they feel like they've got a plan, until they feel better, or be like, all right, I'm doing okay, let me call you in a couple weeks. Right, right. So we always offer that when they first call. When I call to follow up with them, if I haven't already spoken with them about a month later, I'll remind them of it and that that's something there for them to do. We also will let them know about our support groups that we have, Mm -hmm. so that would be an option for them. And then, you know, while we do have a 24-hour line, the 24-hour crisis lines for our clients. Right. And so we then do educational stuff regarding 988 and letting people know that that's, you can call that number. Again, you don't need to be in crisis to do it. Right. Ideally, you get there before the crisis happens, and that's when we want you to call, before it happens, so that you don't have to go through that. Yeah. If you are, great, call then, but don't be afraid to call just because you can feel it coming on. Right, right. Um, but you don't, I'm not, I'm not bad enough, right? Right. Mm-mm. That's why they wanted to change it from being a crisis line to a helpline mm-hmm. because you don't have to be at that extreme to call it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you handle when someone is, like you go to follow up with them and you're just not hearing back from them. They're not answering. You're not, and like you're concerned, right? Like how do you handle that? Um, I imagine that happens. It does happen. Yeah. Um, we had somebody that was coming to the support group very regularly and then all of a sudden, I never heard from them again. Mm. And that's hard, particularly a support group, because I've heard them share their stories. That's extreme, and typically that isn't the case, but that does happen. And that's where leaning on the support team that I have around me of the therapists is very helpful. I can say, what? And there's sort of a, a grief that goes along with that, whether it be a positive closure or a negative closure, right? Mm-hmm. Like they disappeared, or they processed through their trauma and felt like they could move on. Either way, there's some grief involved in that. And obviously that's not as common as the other side of thing, which is where I'm sure people are extremely happy to hear from you when you follow up. (laughs) Generally, yes. (laughs) You're a very likable person and easy to talk to, obviously. So, I mean, hey, it's better than a bill collector calling. Very much so. (laughs) I know I feel bad because I don't try to disclose where I'm calling from initially in case it isn't that person or it isn't safe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I'll have to say, you know, is so-and-so there without disclosing who I am? Mm-hmm. And I know the hesitation of, that's me, because they know right. what I'm So I'm, I'm quickly into, yeah. is Tracy the case manager at Reach? <laughs> and, you know, then they're fine. Right. But I, I haven't yet figured out the way to do it without disclosing who I am, but have them know that it isn't a spam yeah i really have an appreciation for what you do and i like you're the heartbeat of what happens here because you're making sure that people don't fall through the cracks and that's really important do other agencies like reach and i know there's no one quite like there's reach, no one quite like us right i know i know let's make that clear but other agencies or organizations like this do they have do they all have case managers no um there are a lot of Particularly the the SASPs, the sexual assault service providers, tend to work more on an advocacy basis. And certainly there are lots of things that I do that advocates do and vice versa. But it is a different role because I'm not just wearing a I'm only here for you hat. Right. right? 
do something a little different than that. So a lot of our the other SASPs will use that advocate role rather than a case manager role. So it isn't something that I'm familiar with. I know Habitat had their family services coordinator, right? So that was somebody that worked specifically with the families to help them meet, meet their goals. But I don't know of that existing at any other SASPs. Because I can't imagine not having you at reach. Like, yeah, like, like you feel such a need and you're such glue for all the departments that I just can't imagine an organization like this not having a Tracy. Like that's weird to me. Well, I think they should too. <laughs> I suck with praise. And so I'm like, take it in Tracy. Take yes, it in. Take it. <laughs> it's okay. I know. They I can know. say positive things. So I have one last question for you. Okay. So you're a parent. Yes. And in hearing, <laughs> and in hearing all the stories that you hear and the calls that you get, how has that impacted the way you parent your children? In most ways, it hasn't, because this was obviously something I've done for a long time. Um, I'm a survivor myself, and so it was something that was always part of who I was, mm-hmm. and that I knew that it was out there. I will say I have been more proactive in ways that, that I wouldn't have thought about if I didn't do this role, Right. one of which would be pornography right. and the accessibility on the internet. Certainly when I grew up, very different types of pornography than what we see today. And so I have read a book to my, well now he's eight, but he was seven at the time, and my 10-year-old about good pictures, bad pictures, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And it's specifically geared at kids that age to talk about you know, what happens when they accidentally find pornography um, and what they can do. And so that was something I never would have thought about well, most likely, um, if I hadn't been in this job. Whereas now it's something that I can know and I can share and tell my other parents about. Um, be like, this wasn't something I thought I would have to do as a parent with my seven-year-old. But I believe the average age of a child running into pornography accidentally on the internet is nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think people realize that. I really don't because in the parents, I'm a parent and in other parents that I talk to, there's so many parents who are like, oh no, I won't talk to them about that till high school. And I'm like, <laughs> they, if, if they have a smartphone, that's going to pop up on their screen Absolutely. before high school. Right? Absolutely. So you have to equip them. Uh, what Do you know what that book is called? I, I think the title of it is Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Okay. Okay. Um, and we can link that. But, we, the but I will give that yeah. to you. And so when the podcast actually runs, we can have that linked. But it was something that I know, I don't know if um, our Tim downstairs, our part of our SOT team gave me that one, or if it was something that I found as part of a training I had attended while being here. Okay. Because um, I'll... I'll Keep my eyes out for keep my eyes open for some of those different virtual programs to listen to, so I can work on compiling uh, tools for particularly for parents um, of kids. Yeah. So I I have my parenting resources tab button um, on um, Chrome for me to go and find those because that's a lot of what I get. Yeah. Um, besides working with the survivors directly or victims directly is that I work with parents of kids who've been abused yeah. and the what do I do now phase. Right, right, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing everything you did today. Do you have any other things you'd like to share, advice you'd like to give, things you've noticed in your role, anything else you'd like to add? Certainly, I love what I get to do here. And... It makes me very happy that it's a position that's 
fits with what I need in my life right now and is what Reach needs. Mm -hmm. And so that is pretty darn awesome. Yeah. And that keeps me going with what I'm doing and knowing that Reach wants to be flexible. The DEI work that Reach does really fits with who I am Mm -hmm. myself. And so I can wear my fight racism uh, empower women t-shirts to work mm-hmm. and it makes mm-hmm. me happy mm-hmm. that part of it is really awesome I do really value that I get to help both our clients and our staff mm-hmm. and so that helping role for me has has always been what I've wanted to do whether it be in higher education um, or social services or here what I've always wanted to do is help people right uh, certainly that human development or that, that growth of humans, that 18 to 25 is still a fave of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much development in that age group. And certainly it's a huge chunk of the population that we work with. So it really just was a cosmic alignment of what I wanted and needed in no job. Well, thank you for all that you do. Thank and you. And keep being awesome. I am amazing. <laughs> I am amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. You are not alone. Reach Counseling is here to help, and we're expanding our reach. Since 1976, we have offered our services throughout Winnebago County. We are pleased to now offer our services in Outagamie and Calumet counties as well. Reach Counseling is a sexual assault service provider for children and adults that offers culturally responsive outreach, prevention education, victim advocacy, trauma counseling, and sex offender treatment. As an anti-violence agency, we strive to heal lives and transform communities. Call our 24-7 helpline anytime at 920-722-8150. For more information, visit us at reachcounseling.com.